0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmear's Day, November 6th, 2023. Happy birthday to our friend Cameron. On the show today, news and listener questions where I attempt to answer, when is Liberty Square? Then in our main segment, Jim tells us how Disney Imagineers make those awesome water effects like the Jumping Fountains at Imagination and Journey of Water. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says conspiracy theorists should talk to project managers about how large organizations really work. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: Uh, I like that one. It's like, OK, so why is it that we have not heard from uh, clearly the hundreds of people who fake the moon landing? There had to be the guy who swept out the warehouse of all that moon dust. You know, somebody, somebody, somebody's got to gotta talk. Somebody's got to talk eventually. It's like, eh.
0: All right, Jim, let's give a quick shout out to subscribers over at patreon.com slash Jim Thanks to new subscribers Chase Brock, English Pitt, Thomas Rogers, and Mikey Lindsay. And longtime subscribers Nate Brown, hey Nate, Karen Pearsall, Goat Cheesy, and MC Cat 1995. Jim, these are the cast members who build the gingerbread houses we're about to see all around Walt Disney World. They say that it's a year-round job that leaves them smelling like holiday spices every day. And whatever you do, do not ask them about the open-concept gingerbread kitchen incident from 2018 True Story. All right, As a quick reminder to folks, we're moving the show off of Bandcamp and onto Patreon, beginning with our show on January 1st, 2024. Don't forget to close down your Bandcamp subscription and sign up and see all of our new stuff over at patreon.com slash Media. On to the news. Folks, the news is sponsored by Touring Plans Travel Agency, and we can help you book your next trip. Plus, it comes with a free Touring Plans subscription. Check us out at touringplans.com dish. All right, Jim, on to the news. In the Magic Kingdom, the Jungle Cruise has gone through its annual holiday makeover and is now the Jingle Cruise. That includes new decorations throughout the ride, a new holiday script for skippers to, well, let's face it, they completely deviate from it, but whatever. You know, they've been in the jungle for a really long time, so, okay. Wow. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Seriously, a new Jingle Cruise script? That's what I hear, so we'll wow. say. Oh, okay, no, no, the, the must-see, okay, cool, cool, cool. Also, Disney's announced that uh, the Magnolia Golf Course is going to return to its 18-hole format later this month. Right now, it's uh, 14 holes due to construction, and when it returns, it's going to be a par 70, with holes number 15 and 16 shortened a little bit. Jim, no word there on whether windmills. Have been added near the greens, but I'm I'm anticipating that'll be like in the official PR announcement.
1: Oh, there we go. And again, I think, you know, if, if they bring back the whale with the mouth that opens and closes, <laughs> ooh, ooh, very challenging.
0: Also, uh, Jim, did you see this one where uh, the monorail yellow got stuck outside of uh, Epcot's toll plaza last week and uh, passengers had to be evacuated?
1: Yeah, I, and what was fascinating was to watch the two camps duke it out on on social media. There were the folks who were like, "Well, clearly, we need a brand new monorail system. This thing is, you know, out of date and it's in poor shape." And and there were the people who came back. It's like, let me get this straight: your car gets a flat tire, and you replace it. I mean you're literally well yeah. that's it. All right, new time for a new car. And it's like I get bold signs but I think everyone agrees that the monorail has needed some love and an update for a decade or more.
0: Yeah. I mean this is a this is the equivalent now of the hand me down car that your parents gave you. Oh yeah. When you turned 16 and were able to drive, yeah.
1: I've heard the exact same argument about We can't replace the monorail. It's the same argument they use for why we can't have the Nightmare Before Christmas overlay for Walt Disney World's version of the Magic Kingdom. It's like it would take three to four years to fix the monorail. They'd have to shut it down and they'd have to bring in new cars. They'd have to replace the beams. It's a giant project. And so and it's the notion of for three to four years, people coming to Walt Disney World would not be able to ride the monorails. And that's a deal breaker. You know, this is. Part of the Walt Disney World experience.
0: I mean, also think about the uh, the extra transportation that would be involved just for the monorail resorts.
1: Oh God, yeah.
0: To get to the Magic Kingdom or to get to Epcot, right? I mean, then it, it becomes yeah, it becomes cost prohibitive. Yeah, I get it. And yeah. it was it was a flat tire. I mean, we're, it, we're it was okay it time.
1: was a flat tire. But at the, the, the same time, it started a conversation that has been interesting <laughs> online. Let's just say that.
0: And speaking of conversations, Jim, uh, I had this one for you in the show notes. Mm-hmm. If you had the choice of being evacuated from the monorail way up high near the Contemporary or being evacuated from the Skyliner over Hourglass Lake near Pop Century? What would you pick?
1: (laughs) Wow. Oh, okay. (laughs) interesting. It's like, well, you know, we have the rat poisoning or we have the strychnine. Hmm. uh,
0: Which would you like in your coffee, Mr. Hill? I think I would prefer Hourglass Lake because I think if you hit the water, you'd at least have a chance. Well, there we go. All right. Speaking of Epcot, uh, some construction walls have been pushed back in World Celebration, showing new flooring and other details. Uh, Jim, Disney said this will all be open in a few weeks. I'm still skeptical, but uh, but give him credit for making this push. Okay. Okay. All right. Also, Jim, this one didn't get much attention, but it looks like Universal Orlando has quietly raised the price of its cheapest ticket, the one-day one-park pass for adults, by $10 from 109 to $119. And so that that would indicate to me that uh, Universal seems like demand for their parks is going to be relatively steady, and that most people won't care about the extra ten dollars on those few days in which it was offered.
1: I get that. I get that. But this is the one day, one park. Did we look at the multiple day beyond that? Or I didn't.
0: Uh, I didn't see anything on that. the mm-hmm. uh, The interesting thing for me on this was, you know, one hundred nine dollars is what Disney's charging for its cheapest days, mm-hmm. you know, to the park. So it's kind of a signal that. If Disney doesn't do this, but Universal does, mm-hmm. it would signal something about how, how how they they feel the next few months are going to go. And the reason why I mentioned that is that uh, last week Comcast, which owns Universal, said on its latest quarterly earnings that Universal attendance was quote relatively in line with 2019 quote, which I take to mean slightly below 2019 levels. And for perspective, in 2019, there were about twenty uh, about twenty one point four million. Guests to Universal in 2022 is actually more than that, by about uh, Mm 300,000. So I think Universal is saying here, expect 300,000 fewer people to have visited the parks, uh, which is roughly a decline of around 3.5%. Okay, okay. That would make sense.
1: What kind of intrigues me here is the $10 price increase. It's like they are going to have to find some place to put the $8.6 billion they just got for Hulu. You know, it's just yeah, sort of – Right, yeah. You know, so it's like, hang on, move that pile of money so we can put this pile of money over there. You know, it's like, could
0: we, can, could we stack this money on top of that money? Or is there, that pile of money so big that it go. would cause a problem? Yeah, yeah All right. So. Yeah, and uh, Disney's going to sell, is it, they're going to sell, what, their, uh, their TV rights in India to make to pay for that? Is that what and I heard? That's the story
1: that the Star System, which
0: is part of,
1: of their Disney Plus over there, we still hear noise about something going on with ESPN, which I saw a financial report yesterday that referred to ESPN as a, a melting glacier.
0: Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the amount of money they're getting from cable revenue is uh, is steadily declining. And I think that the uh, the partnerships that they're doing are all trying to bolster that brand mm-hmm. to turn it into a, a post-cable TV world.
1: Yeah, yeah. so I Just uh, interesting times for the company.
0: Anyway, welcome back to the Economics 101 podcast. All right. <laughs> on, to, uh, on to listener questions. Mm-hmm. Jim, last week we were talking about uh, a question from... Nick Driss about Voyage of the Little Mermaid. And this inspired a number of folks to write in, uh, many of whom worked for Disney with various stories about the Little Mermaid. And I'm going to keep everyone anonymous because some of these folks still work for the company. Mm-hmm. So uh, somebody wrote it and said this, Regarding Ariel on the Fantasmic Riverboat, mm-hmm. at least once or twice a year, there would be multiple bolts of clear plastic vinyl, like shower curtain material, with multiple textures that would have to be dyed, into a variety of colors and then cut into the shape of the scales in Ariel's fin. Mm -hmm. The vinyl material had to be pliable, yet sturdy enough to handle being quickly vacuumed into her rock to reveal her legs. (laughs) And, Jim, I mentioned this because I didn't know how that effect worked. So apparently it's a vacuum. And I love that anyone performing the role of Ariel Mm -hmm. has to get some sort of debrief and warning about industrial vacuums. Like, I think... (laughs) If you look at things that you don't
1: expect to hear, yeah, yeah, yeah. this reminds me once of the effect of how the beast. In the Beauty and the Beast show, a stage show at the studio, how they pull off the final change of the Beast to the Prince is a great bit of misdirection, which we will not get into because we have all sorts of aerial stories to share today. (laughs)
0: Right, and another one from another anonymous source who says, "I was working at Animation Courtyard Mm -hmm. when we came back from the pandemic closing. Something about Voyage of the Little Mermaid that a lot of people forget is the show used a water curtain during certain scenes." So you have to imagine that all of that equipment and water sat stagnant for three months. My understanding was when we came back from furlough, they discovered water damage and or mold damage, possibly even extending to the puppets stored there, like the giant Ursula. So at this point, I'm not even sure a deep clean would do them any good. They probably need to gut the entire building and rebuild from scratch. (sighs) That would would make sense. Boy, that
1: reminds me of the stories of the Wolfgang Puck restaurant at California Adventure when they uh. gave up on that facility there at Paradise Pier and just walked away and it was was weeks later that somebody actually went in the building and it's like oh my god they never took the stuff out of the deep fryers. it was like <laughs> oh <laughs> ah,
0: gross it's like my uh, my uh leaving uh Living stuff in the dishwasher, but not running it for uh, for a month and a half. Yeah. It's always nice
1: when a coffee cup waves to you when you
0: open that. Hi. (laughs) Close the door. I'm so sorry. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) All right. From Alex Steven on Patreon Mm -hmm. We all know that Disney leans hard to their own IP for the parks, but this year's movies from Marvel, Lucasfilm, the live action remakes, and Pixar have underperformed. Jim, can you see a world where Disney chooses to make an attraction not based off an existing IP?
1: All of the conversations that I have had with imaginers over the past 10 years have talked about how difficult it is these days to get, you know, I mean, you have to walk into the meeting with a this is the ride system. This is where we want it to go. And this is the IP we would base it on. And this is how many units. This is the plush
0: we're going to sell. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And and that's the thing. The (laughs)
1: notion of stepping in and having to have the conversation about this is a brand new character that the public doesn't know. And it just it is such a non-starter. Yeah, I think the ship has sailed on the non-IP. Now, don't get me wrong. Shanghai. Has a couple of attractions that, for example, their equivalent of Grizzly Peak—the water ride that takes you by the one giant animatronic croc—but I just don't see that happening anymore.
0: I don't think in the domestic parks, but to your point, in mm-hmm. the international parks, especially mm-hmm. those parks where the population doesn't have the legacy of watching Disney's older films,
1: mm-hmm. this is true. If
0: you have to do a Frontierland, mm-hmm. you know Disney's not putting out many. Westerns these days. Oh no. no. In terms of media. So, mm. those parks would be the ones where you would think you'd have the best chance of doing a uh, completely new character. Mm-hmm. So, maybe it's time period and uh, culture based. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. And speaking of time periods and culture, mm-hmm. uh, here's an email from Glenn Busick mm-hmm. following up on our show last week about Tiana's Bayou Adventure in the Liberty Bell Riverboat. Glenn writes in and says, Why is the riverboat in Liberty Square? In terms of the timeline of steam technology, a steamboat would make more sense in Frontierland and there would have been plenty of room to build a dock between the Country Bear Jamboree and Pecos Bells Cafe. Although very primitive steamboats were being experimented with in the late 1700s and early 1800s, nothing of the scale of the current Rivers of America steamboat would have seemed likely to exist until two or three decades into the 1800s, and that doesn't fit in with the Liberty Square time frame. Hmm. And I love these kinds of questions, Jim, because it allows us to nerd out with some research. All right. So so Glenn has a point. The first Mississippi steamboat was the Orleans or the New Orleans mm. launched in 1811. And the Orleans was like the Liberty Bell uh, in Frontierland, a paddle steamer with the paddle in the back of the ship. But the Orleans didn't have decks like the Liberty Bell riverboat. It basically looked like a, uh, a long boat with a, a thing at the end. So it didn't look anything like it.
1: Robert Fulton's steamboat, the Claremont, uh, also known as Fulton's Folly, in 1807, and it would make the 150 mile run up the Hudson from New York City to Albany, but that's in the same window of time.
0: Right, but it didn't look like the Liberty Bell River. Oh, but right? so basically, close. The not very even close. early steamboats were basically um, longboats with uh, steam engines bolted on them. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So I went through the Library of Congress's photos for American <laughs> riverboats. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you know, we go. All right. Okay. Dedication folks, Dedication.
0: <laughs> the earliest image I can find of a Mississippi River boat that looks like the Liberty Bell River boat, you know, mm-hmm. with a paddle wheel in the back mm-hmm. is an eighteen forty four drawing by Edward Sachy titled Jefferson City. And Jim, I threw this in the show notes yeah. so people can see it. But that's, you know, sort of like Mm -hmm. you know, ish, the Liberty Bell River. So a good initial question then is, Mm -hmm. when is Liberty Square supposed to exist? Mm -hmm. The Liberty Bell itself dates to around 1755, so that's pretty early. And we've got the Hall of Presidents, and we know George Washington was president from 1789 to 1797. And I Mm -hmm. know that all the presidents are in the Hall of Presidents, but the Hall of Presidents focuses on the revolution, the creation of the Constitution, and George Washington a lot. So if we have to assign a time, That's a decent choice. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other big thing in Liberty Square, of course, is the Haunted Mansion. Mm -hmm. And so we have to ask, when is the Haunted Mansion? Hmm. for this, I consulted Fox Nolte's excellent book, Boundless Realm, Deep Explorations, Inside Disney's Haunted Mansion. Mm -hmm. And Fox notes that the style of the Haunted Mansion is a gothic revival castellated Mm manor because it has architecture features reminiscent of castles. And that style was introduced to America around 1837. So, if that's at least 1837, then a riverboat from around 1844 is not that far off and would work in the Liberty Square timeline, right? Mm-hmm. But to Glenn's point, 1844 is kind of right on the edge of what we would consider the frontier of America, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the buildings in Frontierland, the town hall is dated to 1867. Mm -hmm. The Frontier Trading Post is supposedly run by Texas John Slaughter, trail boss, says it on the sign. And if you look up his biography, Texas John Slaughter was a trail boss Mm in 1874. Pecos Bills is 1878 and Country Bear Jamboree is 1898. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we've ever said that Liberty Square and Frontierland are separate timelines. And if you think about it, Putting the Diamond Horseshoe Saloon, which Disney says is in Liberty Square and whose architecture dates back to 1840 St. Louis, Mm -hmm. is a nice transition to Frontierland for a couple of reasons. Number one, St. Louis is known as the gateway to the West. That's true.
1: That's true. Yeah.
0: Okay. So in 1840s fits in with the timeline. So if we say Liberty Square exists in a period from roughly 1789 to roughly 1845, all of it seems to work.
1: This is true. And one other note, when they differentiate between the two mansions and the one that's at Walt Disney World is supposed to have architecture that, that feels like the Hudson Valley. Yeah. And in fact, if you lean into Washington Irving and the Sleepy Hollow idea, that story was published in 1820. So again, it sort of does fit the same time period, the same era. But I love that notion of the demarcation point between the two time periods is the Diamond Horseshoe.
0: Yeah, and I love it because it's uh, chronologically, it makes sense, 18, you know, mid-1840s, mm-hmm. but also geographically that it's St. Louis. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think they, these guys know what they were doing when they built this thing. And that was some great research. I, I enjoyed that line. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us how Disney does awesome water effects like jumping fountains. Lots of physics involved. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. There's a Christmas song that Andy Williams introduced back in 1963. Hey, that would mean 2023 is the uh, 60th anniversary of that recording's debut. How cool. Uh, Anyway, the name of that song is It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. But here's the thing. For a lot of folks, the holidays are not the most wonderful time of the year. Maybe you have a somewhat problematic relationship with your family, which... Then makes getting together with them at Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever, stressful for you. Or maybe you're like me and you have loved ones like my daughter Alice who are clear on the other side of the country, which can then make it difficult for the two of you to spend the holidays together, which can then, as Elvis used to say, lead to a blue, 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 blue Christmas. Well, if you find yourself struggling with those seasonal blues, because let's face it, dealing with this time of year can sometimes be a lot. Therapy can help. It can, in fact, be a bright spot in this season of light, give you something to look forward to, make you feel grounded, and even give you the tools that you then might need to navigate the holiday season. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, well, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get started with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. And trust me, folks, given the polarizing times we now live in, if you're headed home for the holidays, having some positive coping skills, not to mention knowing how to set some boundaries with those loudmouth relatives who like to dominate the conversation at a holiday meal, that can be a game changer. So find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Disney Dish today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show.
0: Whom among us does not have a photo of ourselves somewhere in Future World underneath a jumping water fountain? in front of the Imagination Pavilion. It is a rite of passage yeah. for all Disney theme park fans. And you are here to tell us how that actually happens.
1: Yeah, also it's kind of a, a story about how one becomes an Imagineer. I mean, Len, you, you of course heard the phrase, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, or a third time's yep. the charm. Okay, so say you're someone who dreams of someday becoming an Imagineer, and you submit an application for a position at 1401 Flower Street, only to get a rejection letter. So, do you apply again? And if you get rejected a second time, do you persist? And if so, for yeah. how long?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we're not talking about uh, dating apps here. We're talking about jobs. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I would keep I would keep trying. Okay, then you and Mark Fuller
1: would get along because this is a gentleman who spent six years trying to find a way into Imagineering. And once he finally actually got hired by the folks at 1401 Flower Street, he faced some pretty steady headwinds. Some very powerful people at the company were flat out against the project for the parks that that Fuller was championing. And what sort of project? A water-based one. And the Imagineers love water. They use it as a decorative element. I mean, the the, the moat in front of the sleeping Beauty castle. They yep. take advantage of its physical properties, you know, how it can move a ride vehicle along, like uh, the boats in Small World or Pirates. Or, for that matter, how it can slow a ride vehicle down, those splashdown pools at the base of the Matterhorn. They act as a braking mechanism for those bobsleds, but... Today's story starts in the mid to late 1970s, which is right after the company first explored building an entire area at the Walt Disney World Resort around water. And that, of course, was River Country. Opens June of 76. That's an enormous success right out of the gate, which while the folks in Florida quickly start making plans to expand uh, Walt Disney World's very first water park, it's also in the same window of time that Dick Nunes, who was the executive vice president of both stateside Disney parks, uh, there were only two at the time, began asking the Imagineers to, to come up with a, a, some sort of flume ride for either California or Florida, uh, which
0: eventually leads to Splash Mountain. I mean, Dick Nunes was probably the most pro-water ride thing uh, CEO or uh, uh, executive that that company had during that time. Because he did, he did, he he surfed out in front of the Polynesian, right? He did, he did. In fact, he
1: was the one who got the wave machine built, and then when that basically crashed and burned, he was the one who insisted that when uh, Typhoon Lagoon got made, that it would have a wave machine component. I mean, Dick loved the water, and the Florida resort is better because of it. Oh yeah, okay. Anyway, okay, so again, this is the mid to late 1970s, and water is suddenly something that excites a lot of people in upper management at WED. And it's a, it's a, at this exact time, again, after six years of pursuing a position and Imagineering, the door suddenly cracks open for Larry Fuller at Fort Noir Flower Street, and he slips on in. How this happened, of course, was uh, you know that he had the right set of job skills at the right time, and Fuller had just graduated from Stanford uh, with a master's degree in mechanical engineering in 1978, and hmm. since Disney was gearing up for the construction of Epcot Center, uh, they wouldn't actually break ground until October of 79, but they were scooping up every mechanical engineer they could get their hands on. You have a pulse, right, Larry? Close enough. <laughs> there Come we on go. In. Come on in. Yeah. Um, right. And, and Larry, his thesis work at Stanford especially fascinated the folks at Disney at that time. You see, Mr. Fuller had been experimenting with laminar
0: flow technology. Oh, really? He has a master's degree there we go. involving there. laminar flow. Yeah. Man, I'm not I'm not jealous of many people. Jim, because it's great being me, but, but man, all right, okay. <laughs> well, no,
1: but that's <laughs> the thing, you know, it, it was a, a wide open field at that time because the thought of moving water at the molecular level, channeling all yes. this fluid in one direction with an equal steady pressure that if you controlled laminar flow— Water suddenly took on these amazing new qualities. It could appear to be stationary or even solid, yeah, like a, a solid, yeah. Yeah, a solid tube of glass. And and so Fuller, as part of his master thesis in mechanical engineering, he built the world's first permanent laminar fountain in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. And by the way, permanent is probably the wrong word to use here. This this 10 foot by 20 foot water feature was located at the Conquistador Apartments at 3300 South in Salt Lake City. And hmm. it was beloved by neighborhood residents. Uh, the guy who owned the apartment complex, not so much.
0: Not, not so much a fan of uh, water fountains. Yeah, he, he tore out the world's
1: first permanent laminar fountain a few years later that, when he ran, uh, you know, renovated the building, turning the, the apartments into condos. But anyway, uh-huh. okay, Larry's first assignment, at least when it comes to Epcot Center, was the fountain that was slated to be built at the center of Communicore, which in and of itself is the, or, or was the center of future world. So since this was gonna be right in the center there, and to fit the theme of of this part of Epcot, had to be sleek, modern, and more to the point, had to be powered by a computer. So Fuller and his team, they construct an oval, 180 feet long, 120 feet wide. They then rig up 328 individual nozzles that could then send 29,000 gallons of water in all sorts of directions, including 30 feet straight up in the air. Wow doing that pulling is that, that's that off. a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, you need a lot of back of house machinery and infrastructure to pull that off. But think about that. Oh, yeah. In Communicore, there is no such thing as back of house. You are literally on stage. So what they had to do was dig down. Oh
0: The Epcot version of Utilidors?
1: There we go. There we go.
0: Yeah. So there's there's actually stuff underneath the fountains?
1: There is a corridor that runs through uh, underground, that section of the park, which allows the folks who maintain the fountains to get down there and tend to the machinery because all of this stuff had to be in place before serious construction began on Communicore West and Communicore East, this was two solid years, length of design and then site prep and installation and then test and adjust. Oh, wow. For water fountains. For a water fountain. All right. But around this very same time, we're talking late 1980, early 1981, word is getting out within WED that Kodak, who's agreed to be Mm -hmm. the sponsor of the Future World Journey to Imagination Pavilion, Is upset. Uh, To be specific, it's the executives at that Rochester, New York-based company who are upset with Disney because they've just learned that the ride-through attraction for their pavilion won't be ready in time for Epcot's uh, opening
0: day. That's a okay tough conversation to have. Yeah, and
1: there was the Magic Journeys 3D movie, but again, Mm -hmm. remember we're having this conversation in late 1980, early 1981, and Disney couldn't actually assure the folks yeah. in Rochester that, yeah, that'll be ready. And that was largely because so many of the pavilions for Epcot, whether we're talking uh, World Showcase or Future World, had film elements. We did Oh Canada, Wonders of China, Impressions of France, the giant film elements for Universe of Energy. And right. all of these were competing for resources at the studio. All of them were urgent deadline projects, yeah. and at the very same time, Disney Studios is working on
0: Tron. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of people are involved in the film industry. So Magic Journeys might not happen on time. I get it. Okay, all right. So yeah. they need a contingent. They need a contingency for the contingency.
1: There we go. <laughs> okay. There we go. All, all right. right. So great. <laughs> it's at this point Larry
0: steps forward and says.
1: I did this thing out in front of the Conquistador Apartments.
0: In Salt Lake City,
1: you guys saw it, right? (laughs) But this is the thing. It has to go to the board to get approved. And the board is not going to go to Salt Lake City.
0: To see a fountain,
1: right? To see a fountain. So Larry has to create a film test to show them. But here's the thing, Len. Laminar flow technology is not at the point yet that they could then. You know, at, at this point, the average height uh, the the average height of a male is five point nine feet. Average height of a female is five point four feet, and they can't okay. control the laminar flow enough to jump over a person consistently to do this. But Larry's a clever guy. He he goes through all of uh, Imagineering and finds this woman who works in documents control in the building. And she's only four feet eight, you're just tall,
0: <laughs> but you know what? If uh, if we're doing a, if we're doing a video and we don't have a a ruler next to her, who knows? There we go. All right. Who knows?
1: So, <laughs> so that's the thing. They convince this woman to come out of time and control. They take her down, and they they consistently show this tube of water shooting over this woman's head, and she's delighted. And they show it to the board, and they're delighted, and so they agree to give the funding to do really? the. Ima- imagination
0: gardens outside of <laughs> of the he's, i love that he's like we could well, i'm 90 per 80 75 you know what this will probably work
1: <laughs> then we, no that, that's it exactly because he, he you know in fact orlando ferrante who was one of the big heads of a imaginary during the time you know and once he gets the money you know <laughs> larry turns to him and says i'm going to need a few engineers <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, know,
0: you 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 might hear some welding, some banging, and some screaming. Don't don't ask any questions. <laughs> but but
1: it ends up he has to task a hundred engineers to crack the problem of it has to be able to leap over, you know, an average American in height. And it has to perform consistently. And it not only has to perform consistently, it has to perform consistently 365 days a year. And at this point, Larry tells the story about there's this This veteran Imagineer, he never shares the name, but Mm -hmm. it was somebody who worked personally with Walt on the California park and then got tasked to go work for Florida and basically cusses him out because it's like, we are 200% over budget on Epcot and you are Mm -hmm. wasting the company's money on this thing that will not work. And it takes a Herculean effort to pull this off. And it comes right down to the wire, Len. Fuller tells Mm. the story about prior to the opening of Epcot, he did not sleep for four days. They were working that hard. (laughs) to get this yeah. thing open. And, and and honestly, part of the problem, again, if we pivot back to the fountain in the center of Communicore, you needed a huge physical plant that was hidden in plain sight to, well, remember, this isn't just the Leapfrog Fountains, which, again, that's five separate planters with 17 yeah. different nozzles that have to act in perfect concert to sell the effect of you know this this jet of water leaping over people but it's alive it's it's moving through this thing but at the same time think about it there's also the waterfall that goes up there's also those jellyfish fountains that spurt out water and suddenly yep. there's a 3 foot in diameter circular thing hanging in the air or the you know the other one that seemed to juggle balls of water and all of yep. this had to be ready for October 1st but In the end, this back of a house thing, none of the money that was spent mattered because when Epcot Center officially opens October 1st, 1982, one of the highest rated attractions in the park Mm -hmm. is the Leapfrog Fountains.
0: Oh, yeah. Everyone loves it. Everyone who saw it instantly loved it. And it was was one of those things where you were like, only Disney would think of this.
1: That's it exactly. And the fact that Disney had figured out a way to make water a character, you know, had brought it to life. Yeah, And yes, this project was costly, and yes, it was stressful, but they got it in. And in fact, Larry also tells the story that after it opened and after it was a huge success, again, that veteran Imagineer who worked with Walt personally sought Larry out and apologized. It's like, you were right. I was wrong. (laughs) You
0: were right. Okay. All right. This is kind of (laughs) cool. But
1: now, once work is completed on Epcot Center, there are all sorts of layoffs at WDI. Oh, yeah. And Mark, being a smart guy, can read the handwriting on the wall. So he exits Imagineering in the mid-1980s and goes off and sets up his own company, Water Entertainment Technology, which is better known (laughs) in (laughs) themed entertainment circles by its initials, Len, wet.
0: Wet. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of great. It is. It is. So what, what what do they do now? Oh, God. Any
1: giant water feature... We're talking about some of the biggest in the world, like the fountains in Dubai, or stateside folks would probably know best uh, the fountains at Bellagio. Really? Mark did those. That's them. Ah. And yeah, you know, if we swing back to Disney, they, on the backs of this, definitely leaned into, okay, we're doing more stuff with water. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we got Typhoon Lagoon in June of '89. we got Mm Blizzard Beach, April of 1995, and just this past month, we got the Journey of Water inspired by Moana, which opened in the World Nature section of Epcot on October 16th of this year.
0: Don't forget all of the effects in The uh, the Laughing Place at uh, at Splash Mountain. This is true. This those is true. Those are the same effects, just yeah. on a smaller scale.
1: But this all happened, first of all, because Larry Fuller wouldn't stop looking for Rwanda WDI for six years. More to the point, Larry was the sort of guy who could look at ALF, and by the way, that's the abbreviation for asymmetric Laminar flow, which is what happens when water particles all have the same flow rate and directions like photons in a laser. But Larry was the kind of guy who could take asymmetric laminar flow and turn that scientific principle into something that would be fun for theme park guests. And... (laughs) Just, d- just want to bring this to a close uh, with with this message. We need more Larry Fullers, folks. So stay in school and See get a master's. Kids. Yeah, there we go, and, and get a master's degree in mechanical engineering. For as, as our pal Jim Shule likes to say, there is no one straight path that leads into fourteen hundred one Flower Street.
0: And some of those paths aren't even dry. Some of no nope. way. <laughs> there we go. There we go. That is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, the jumping fountain stuff is so strongly associated with with Disney theme parks that I I can't imagine anyone who saw it there originally Mm -hmm. doesn't see it somewhere else and go, oh my God, I know where they got this from. Yeah, And the Bellagio Fountains are kind of great. I told you that uh, Blo- the Bellagio Fountains is where my dad said he wanted his ashes uh, spread. And I'm not saying we did it or not, because the Statue of Limitations hasn't run out yet. But uh, but yeah, my dad loved those
1: fountains. Oh, <laughs> that's a great story. That's a great story.
0: <laughs> anyway, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, all right. So let's all, let's all take photos of, uh, of jumping water the next time we're in Epcot. There you go. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show into Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at patreon.com slash jimhillmedia, where we're posting new Never Seen Stuff weekly, including a new Q&A show this week with Disney Imagineer Jim Scholl. On next week's show, Jim gives us the behind-the-scenes details on how Disney decides to introduce new character greetings into the park, and why some of them stick around and some of them don't. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. Also, Jim and I will be doing a live podcast from the Theme Park Play Workshop at MIT's Game Lab at 6.30 p.m. this Thursday, November 9th at the Status Center, room 32-155. It's free and it's open to the general public. And by general public, I mean the various theme park factions of nerds, geeks, wonks, and dweebs, or what we like to call our people. Come on out and we'll all have fun. Mm We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be representing the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids to celebrate the solstice at the Ticonderoga Historical Society's Festival of the Trees on Thursday, December 21st, 2023 at Hancock House. That's on Moses Circle in beautiful downtown Ticonderoga, New York. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.